still convince you to say the Shema with me, now's the time. Let's recite it together before we hear the scriptures. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can have a seat. This week we're in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, and I'm going to begin uh, with verse 1 and read a few of the verses of Scripture, then fill in some blanks for you and read a few more at the end of this chapter. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. So Cornelius's men arrive at Peter's home. Peter welcomes them in and gives them lodging. And the next day, Peter returns to Caesarea with them where Cornelius's relatives and friends have gathered to hear what Peter has to say. Peter begins his sermon with these words. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. While Peter is speaking, Pentecost is extended. The Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles in Caesarea, and Peter baptizes the group in Cornelius' home. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Cornelius is a Roman military officer who lives in Caesarea on the sea. And Caesarea was a port city that Herod the Great had built up. It's pictured behind me. You can see, you can imagine the beautiful setting. Caesarea was where the governor of Judea usually resided. Because of the pleasant climate and the location close to the sea, Jerusalem was probably a more logical place for the governor, but Caesarea was certainly a more beautiful place. And so given the power and the choice, 
I, I think that you and I would probably also choose Caesarea. Uh, Cornelius is a military man of some power. He's a mid-ranking officer in the military with about 100 men under him. That's the name Centurion. And if the title didn't tell us that he was a good man, or if the text didn't tell us that he was a good man, which the text certainly did, very early on in the passage it says that uh, Cornelius is a devout man who feared God gave alms and prayed constantly. So if the text didn't vouch for his character, then his military rank and his geographical assignment might do just that. Uh, Because of the number of soldiers that report to him and because of this choice location, it's easy to see that at the very least, Cornelius is a good Roman soldier. But that's the catch. A good Roman soldier. Peter and the other apostles would laugh at the notion that a Roman soldier could be called good. N.T. Wright says, Rome wasn't simply a military superpower. They were relentlessly brutal. And the disciples knew that Rome's military officers could snap their fingers and have them flogged or killed or their house diminished. It's no wonder that the three men who appear at Peter's place in Joppa, when they immediately report who they are, say that they are from the household of an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. It's obvious what conclusions Peter would jump to about a Roman centurion. He would think that he was probably callous, brutish, power-hungry, The story is told about C.S. Lewis as a small boy, probably about the age of six or seven, announcing to his father, I have a prejudice against the French, to which his father reasonably asked him, why is that? And the young boy said, if I knew that, it wouldn't be a prejudice. (laughs) And that's true, because a prejudice is something that we have when we prejudge. We make up our minds before we have all the facts. Or I might just have one or two facts that I like a lot that prove my point. And I can do that with a day. I caught myself doing that about midday on Thursday when I turned to Keith and said, this is a really stupid day. Or I can do it with a thing or a place, like a restaurant or a hotel. I often prejudge by reading an online review before I ever see the restaurant or the place or experience it for myself. But I think it's probably most tempting and spiritually dangerous to do that with people, to prejudge people. I've done it. I'm um, easily tempted to assess and judge. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my family. They'll tell you. But I've also had it done to me. I've been put into categories like too religious or judgy, or heretic, or even witch. (laughs) I've learned that the healthy boundary to put up is about dehumanization. When someone puts a label on me that takes away my dignity, that takes away my humanity, and starts that process of demonizing, it's not okay. 
And it's not okay for me to do that to other people either. Brene Brown recently wrote about the current social climate. There's a line that's etched in dignity. And she said, raging, fearful people cross that line at an unprecedented rate every day. It's true that we live in a highly polarized time. And that tempts us to put people in categories, to put people in categories of good and bad, or categories of absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And I want you to know that it's my experience of the last few years that that is really bad for our souls. When Brene Brown teaches about how to acquire a sense of belonging in your own life, She says that you simply don't do it by keeping a safe distance from other people. But instead, she advises people are hard to hate close up, so move in. Those who have the strongest sense of true belonging form their opinion of other people based on actual in-person experiences and not because of a label. One of the best things about being married to Keith for me is that sometimes people don't know that I'm a religious zealot or a pastor when I'm with him. They just know that I'm the wife of a contractor. And this last spring, I got to go on a trip with Keith and some other people who were in the home building business. And we spent one afternoon and evening out on a boat fishing and snorkeling. It was a fun day with lots of good food and sunshine, and there was even some loud music. When we came back to the dock on the boat, the music was blaring, and I was sitting up on top, and so I noticed that there were some kids on the dock with their hands over their ears, and they had some women standing next to them whose arms were crossed, and the women just had these scowls on their faces. The guy who was in charge of the expedition, he apologized to me the next day. He said, I feel bad. I feel bad that we offended those people. And I said, I usually am those people. (laughs) I usually am the easily offended. And you know, it's nice to be on the other side of the equation for an afternoon. (laughs) The story about Peter and Cornelius the centurion pushes the faithful to look beyond stereotypes. And if you were here last week, you might be thinking, well, that's very similar to the story of last week about the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who was from the ends of the earth, uh, was also about Christianity pushing the stereotypes. The difference in last week's story and this week's story is that the Roman centurion is a threat. He's an enemy. The Ethiopian is unknown. He's mysterious, and that's a little scary. We have to conquer some fear to get into categories of new things, new places, new people. But this story in Acts chapter 10 is different. It's further along in Acts, and it steps up the scary. To everyone in the early church, a Roman centurion would be known And he would be known not because of his personhood or his actions, but he would be known because of his citizenship and his title. Because he's a Roman military officer, he would just simply be no good. 
So it's important that the people in this story in Acts chapter 10 in his household know who know Cornelius speak highly of him and it's important that the Holy Spirit testifies to his character and I would say it's most important that Peter the leader of the church is able to do the same to testify to his character. Some say that Acts chapter 10 is about the centurion's conversion, and maybe it is about the centurion's conversion on the surface, but I can't tell you what happens to Cornelius after he welcomes Peter into his home. I'm pretty certain that he doesn't leave Caesarea and he doesn't ever sit on the council in Jerusalem. I suspect that his interaction with the Holy Spirit and with Peter gave him some clarity about his own faith. But we just don't know much more than that. We don't know what happens to him. I'm more compelled to say that this story is a story about the conversion of the early church. It's a story about how those who follow Christ are convinced that every person can follow Christ. Even those people that we would label as bad. Even those people that we would label as wrong. Even those people that we would label as our enemy. A conversion always involves repentance. A change in direction. And this story reminds me that a change in direction, that repentance is often a process because this is a really long story, so long that I didn't even read the whole thing to you this morning. And Peter doesn't immediately get it. He, he does change. He does repent. He goes from, at the beginning of the story, surely not, Lord, to at the end of the story, I truly understand that God does not show favoritism. And that's quite a turn, but it's just simply not instantaneous. He has this vision multiple times. And then there's some internal reflection on his part. And there are other people who come and give Peter good information. And then finally, there's this setting of hospitality, hospitality that happens in Peter's home and then again in Cornelius's home. And hospitality and table, I believe, are always, always where God shows up. Peter welcomes men from Cornelius's household and he offers them a place to stay overnight. And then when he goes to Caesarea, he stays in Cornelius's home for a few days. I think it's safe to say that however we define faith family as Christians, one easy fail-proof way to define the Christian family is to do it. And we do the Christian family by eating together, by sitting together at the table. We sit down and eat with our faith family and I believe that Acts chapter 10 offers us this challenge. Would you sit down at the table with someone that you don't want to be in the same room with? That's what Acts chapter 10 asks us. A few years ago, my extended family went up the road to Wimberley for a weekend, just for a couple of nights. And the first night that we were all together, my then five-year-old nephew asked me for a bag of Doritos at dinner time and I said well okay Harrison what kind of sandwich do you want with your chips and he said back to me no sandwich just chips and I think because my kids are older I had this memory lapse and I thought that whatever I said would be embraced with immediate 
immediate obedience. And so I said, um, if you have chips, you have to have a sandwich. That is the rule. <clears throat> what followed was an impressive protest and a hunger strike. <laughs> he had nothing for a couple of hours. And the remedy just came in time for the family photo when the 17 members of my extended family ch chanted in solidarity with Harrison, who had red Dorito dust all over his fingers and his mouth. There are no rules, Aunt Dinah. There are no rules, Aunt Dinah. There are no rules, Aunt Dinah. I think that's true about a holy table. A holy, sacred table should be a safe place, a place where we speak our minds and we allow minds to be changed under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who I can promise you, if change is coming, the Holy Spirit will provide several clues. Daryl is preaching in the sanctuary today, and he developed a theory as we studied this text together this week that this story in Acts is connected to the story of Jonah by location, by the city of Joppa. Joppa is in both stories. Joppa is where Jonah tries to hide out to escape going to Nineveh to preach repentance. And Joppa is where Peter is residing when Acts 10 begins. Joppa's biblical roots can be traced to the tribe of Dan. And Dan's name literally means to judge. So could it be that anytime Joppa is mentioned in the Bible, we are then to think that's a place where judgment happens? I imagine that Joppa is a comfortable little city. I think I'd like it there. <laughs> in fact, I suspected this week that I could probably run a successful race for mayor of Joppa. They would like me there. <laughs> But what I want you to know about Joppa is that it's no place to reside. It's no place to live permanently. Not when the Holy Spirit is continually calling us away from there to Caesarea. Caesarea might seem dangerous, but its view and its climate are a hundred times better for the soul. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, you call us away from the seat of judgment to follow the movement of your Holy Spirit. Would you enable us to take risks that bless and honor your people, all people? Would you provide us, Lord, with opportunities to gather at tables in the days ahead, any table, and notice the hallowed sacred ground? You call each of us to exercise great courage. And in that place of courage, you grant us even greater freedom. We thank you and we seek always to do your will. Amen. <laughs>